Chapter 29 of The Life of Philip Melanchthon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Philip Melanchthon by Carl Friedrich Lederhose, translated by Gottlob Frederick Crottle, 1826-1907. Disputes about the Leipzig Interim The more decided and strict adherents of Luther, who had before found so much fault with Melanchthon, now exhibited particular enmity towards him. He was bitterly reproached on account of his compliance. But we now enter upon a part of the history of his life and of the evangelical church, which is not of a very refreshing character. But this, too, should not be wanting, and will exhibit Melanchthon to us in such a light that we cannot refuse our sympathy and even acknowledgment to the goodness of his heart, although we may regret the want of an energy like Luther's. These disputes mainly arose from the interim. In the month of January, the theologians of Berlin made inquiries of those at Wittenberg concerning the interim. Agricola had boasted very much of it in the pulpit, and said that now the door of all Europe was open to the gospel. They wished to know now whether they comprehended among these indifferent things all that had been customary in the papacy, such as holy water, salt, herbs, palms, consecration of unleavened bread, processions with flags and torches, unctions at baptisms and sickbeds, the laying of the cross in Passion Week, etc. They therefore asked for a copy of the agreement of Uterbach, and on the whole, a fuller explanation of these indifferent things, or adiaphora, as they are called. They also asked for further explanations in regard to extreme unction. They replied by Bugenhagen and Melanchthon on the 11th of January. They were not able to send the articles of Uterbach because they had not been presented at the secret conference and did not possess a copy of them. They did not enumerate the consecration of oil and salt among indifferent things, and had always rejected this and other matters. They exhorted those of Berlin to adhere to the church discipline formally given by the elector. They also added this much disputed sentence, As such great devastations are occurring in other places, we believe that it is better to endure a hard servitude, if it can only be done without impiety than to separate ourselves from the churches. Questions and answers, however, did not everywhere pass off as well as in this instance. The excitement increased among the more determined friends of truth when the interim was about to be introduced, and the Prince of Anhalt had considerably revised and altered the liturgy, which had been introduced by Duke Henry. Several conferences were held, and Melanchthon was again actively engaged. On the 13th of April, he was present at a meeting of the chambers at Torgau, where the interim was to be read. He here communicated the fact that an adherent of Flacius, most likely Deacon Schultz of Torgau, had accused the theologians of an intention to lead the people back again to popery. He, at the same time, presented a defense to the chambers in which he showed that it would be necessary to yield somewhat in indifferent matters if the main things in doctrine and the sacrament were sustained, but that they also yielded somewhat, 
because they had been seeking to bring about uniformity in doctrine and ceremonies. But this could not be looked upon as strengthening the papacy. Their opponents declared, indeed, that fear had driven them to compliance, but to this they would reply, We ought not to be condemned for being so fearful as to yield indifferent to needful things, and that we are thus fearful, not for our sakes, but for the good of the people, children, and the entire government. Luther himself had frequently advised compromises in indifferent matters, that they had not introduced any new ceremonies. He defends himself most powerfully against the objection that they were introducing idolatry, and thus concludes, This is indeed a new form of popery, that these violent persons wish to force every one to hold the same opinions as themselves, and fearfully condemn everyone who does not at once agree with them. The ministers of Hamburg also addressed a long epistle to the Wittenbergers, in which they condemned the principle expressed by them, and their reply to those of Berlin, that it would be better to endure a hard servitude in indifferent things than to leave the churches on their account. They thought that too many things were comprehended under this term, and wished the theologians of Wittenberg to explain what they meant by indifferent things. Melanchthon replied in a very friendly manner on the 16th of April. He begins thus, We are pleased if you admonish and correct us in the spirit of love, for this is a very necessary duty in friendship, and much more in affairs of the church. But yet we entreat you that you would judge us leniently, according to your wisdom, reputation, and benevolence and that you would not condemn old friends who have labored much for more than twenty years, and have endured, and do still endure, the greatest conflicts, as we are furiously persecuted by certain other persons with many false accusations. We therefore do not reply to them, lest hatred and discord might be still more inflamed in these sorrowful times. He declares that by the grace of God, the same gospel is still preached in Wittenberg as in Hamburg. They would never permit any alterations in doctrine and in the Lord's Supper, because these were the eternal counsels of God. They had far more to contend with than those who abused them. They did not consent to anything in customs and ceremonies which contradict the word of God. He further declares that by indifferent things, or adiaphora, they did not understand magical consecrations, adoration of images, nor carrying about of the consecrated bread and the like, which they rejected by their words and writings, yea, not even the ridiculous stuff which occurs at funerals. Among the adiaphora they counted those things which the ancient church already possessed, such as festivals, public readings, confession and absolution before the Lord's Supper, examination at confirmation, ordination to the ministerial office, and the like. He also defends the principle that it would be better to endure a servitude not opposed to the word of God than to leave the church, and he also thinks they should rather have been comforted than condemned, inasmuch as they still adhere to the true foundation. In conclusion, he urges unity. But the Wittenbergers and Melanchthon, who was looked upon as their leader, were to endure still severer conflicts. We, in passing, will merely refer to the two pastors, Zwilling and Schultz in Torgau, 
who preferred to be deposed from their ministry rather than wear the white surplice, and called those who wore it traitors and idolaters. Melanchthon regarded these manifestations with great regret, and in his sorrow wrote to the Prince of Anhalt, I would rather go into exile than contend continually with such obstinate men. But Melanchthon's principal opponent at this time, and also afterwards, was Matthias Fallacius, who indeed embittered his life in an indescribable manner. He was born of respectable parents in Albona in Illyria in the year 1520, and after the death of his father, went to Milan and Venice to prosecute his studies. When a youth, he already loved the Bible and intended to enter a cloister to serve God better. But a pious monk, who afterwards suffered martyrdom for the gospel's sake, dissuaded him from this step and revealed to him how the gospel, which had been darkened by the papacy, had again been brought to light by Luther. This at once kindled a fire in the heart of the inflammable young man. Against the wishes of his relatives, and supplied with a very slender purse, he set out for Germany, and in the year 1539 arrived at Basel. He here found a really paternal friend in the well-known reformer, Simon Grenaeus. He made rapid progress in the study of divinity, both at this place and also in Tübingen, whither he went the following year. However, he felt himself drawn to Wittenberg, the mother city of the Reformation. Here he enjoyed the good fortune, so often longed for, to hear Luther and Melanchthon, and he also enjoyed many benefits, especially at the hands of the latter. In Wittenberg, he, for three years, passed through severe inward conflicts, for he could not believe divine grace, and deeply felt the wrath of God abiding upon him. Bugenhagen brought the greatly depressed young man to Dr. Luther, who, as is well known, had been made a powerful comforter by his own deep experience. And it seems that from that time light began to arise in his troubled heart. In the year 1544, he was already professor of the Hebrew language in Wittenberg and taught with great success. At his marriage in the year following, he rejoiced to see Dr. Luther present at the wedding. He was greatly attached to the reformer and with him hated everything that savored of popery. However, he eventually proceeded much further in this respect than Luther, who was willing to suffer wholesome customs to remain, even though they came from the Catholic Church. On this account, Fallacius regarded the interim with the greatest displeasure, and spoke with Eber, Mayor, Pomeranius, and particularly Melanchthon, that they should zealously oppose it by word and deed. But when he saw that they would not consent, but rather, as we know already, accepted the interim of Leipzig, he published various severe writings against the interim and its defenders, yet without mentioning his name. And as the interim succeeded notwithstanding all this, and was about to be introduced into Wittenberg, he resolved rather to leave Wittenberg than see this change. He removed to Magdeburg, where various persons, among them Amsdorf, who had been expelled from his bishopric, who were all highly incensed at the compliance of the Wittenbergers, had taken up their residence. The most violent publications were sent forth from this chancery of God, as Magdeburg was called. 
they gave various insulting names to their opponents at Wittenberg, such as knaves, Samaritans, Baalites, but Melanchthon was the principal mark of their attacks, because they blamed him especially for the introduction of the interim. In a letter to Moeller, he thus temperately expresses his sentiments in regard to the interim. I often advise that no innovations should be made now, for the people would at once cry out that we were destroying the gospel, or at least beginning to do so. But the courts explained that it would be necessary to yield somewhat to the emperor, so that he would not send his armies into these parts and suppress the church as he did in Swambia. But although I am not able to say whether we shall appease the emperor by the reintroduction of a few indifferent ceremonies, yet the courtiers declare that such will be the case, and exhort us not to expose the fatherland and the church to devastation. On account of these non-essential matters, we therefore contend for essential matters, for purity of doctrine and the form of the Lord's Supper, so that the papal mass may not be introduced again, as it was done amid the groans of all the godly in Swambia. But I have never contended about holidays, the order of hymns, and similar matters, and I do not believe that such contention could be reconciled with the moderation needful in the present troubled state of the church. But when some are opposed to all order and all laws, it really seems far too uncivilized to me. I have many years ago wished that our churches might introduce a few ceremonies. A similarity in such matters conduces to unity. Of course, there must be moderation in all such things. We do not make the least alterations in doctrine or essentials, but transubstantiation is the fountain of all the misery in which we find ourselves at the present time and which awaits the church in future. This has added strength to the papal mass, concerning which we shall again hear the most severe commands of the emperor at the next diet. You know that I have treated all other questions of dispute in a manner calculated to remove all doubts from the mind of every pious man who judges leniently. But in regard to the question of transubstantiation, I have always been very short, owing to the slanderous judgments of some of our own side. The men at Magdeburg, and Fallacious particularly, would not be silent, but Melanchthon did not reply. He speaks of this in a letter to Baumgartner. I have not yet answered our neighbors in the city of Parthenope, Magdeburg, because the facts themselves refute them, and what a conflagration would be caused if we should reply. He was induced to remain silent by his love of peace, and perhaps he also hoped that Fallacious, owing to his extravagant views, would not secure many adherents. But in this he was mistaken, and he says himself, in a letter written September 20th to Pastor Lauterbach of Perna, If they do not stop challenging us, I shall answer them. In the meantime, I will refute this outcry by other useful writings. We see how the devil is spurring on unruly spirits to create greater confusion. We will therefore call upon the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, to direct us. At last, October 1st, 1549, he replied to the attacks of Fallacious. In answer to his reproach that doctrines were changed and abolished ceremonies were being reintroduced, 
Melanchthon gives the unequivocal reply that he confessed all that he had recorded in this book, Loki Communis, in which was found the doctrine of the Augsburg Confession of the year 1530. As far as the change of customs was concerned, he was free to confess that he had advised the Flaconians and others not to leave the churches on account of this servitude, provided it could be borne without impiety. But when Fallacious maintains that I have said the churches ought by no means to be left, even if all the old abuses were to be introduced again, I pronounce this to be a palpable lie. He also particularly complains of this, that his opponent made use of expressions which had been uttered in private conversations and in jest. He concludes in a conciliatory manner by saying that he had not taken up the pen on his own account, but for the sake of those who were injured by the writings of Fallacious. They should satisfy themselves that they adhere to the true foundation faithfully in these churches, namely the pure gospel, all the articles of faith, and the use of the sacraments without any perversion. And it is certain that the Son of God is present in such services and hears the prayers of such an assembly. In November, he was summoned to Dresden on account of this affair. The court of the elector seemed to have been at this time disturbed by the publications of Magdeburg. But let us hear what Melanchthon says of it in a letter to the Prince of Anhalt. They were deliberating at court about a modest reply in refutation of the slanderous accusations of our neighbors. However, I advise them not to publish it, for it is very evident that such publications do not cure and pacify slanderous persons, but rather tend to irritate them more. And Pythagoras has said, we ought not to extinguish a fire by the sword. The newest publication of Magdeburg in which they show very plainly that they thirst after my blood, was not yet known at court. I often think of departing. May God direct me. The end will show what kind of spirit rules those who are troubling our already sufficiently troubled churches still more. These disputes still went on, and Fallacious published Melanchthon's letter, which had been written with great timidity during the Diet of Augsburg. These were accompanied by biting original notes from the hand of Fallacious. Melanchthon said of him in a letter written in January 1550, I believe that honorable men detest his poison, for he does not contend for a principal point of doctrine, but publishes books filled with slanders and lies, by which he wishes to gain these two points, to render me detested by the people and even to rouse those against me who still regard me with friendly eyes. But God, the searcher of hearts, will protect me against his slander. End of chapter 29